Welcome to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast. This series explores the letters to the churches in Revelation and how they speak to us today. Let's jump right into today's teaching. Something I, which I know I will share um, in the next three to four Sundays when we're still here is that Harry and I have deeply, deeply appreciated um, this time at Central. I want you to know that from both of us. Many of you know this is the second time I've been the interim pastor at Central. We came here last October, I think it was, and we'll be finishing up towards the end of June. Have you ever thought you needed to write to somebody? Not me, please, don't, don't put me there this morning. I'm going to tell you why. Every time I stand in a pulpit like this, I'm indebted to a man who died some years ago. I attended a Baptist seminary about 60 years ago in Glasgow. And a new principal had come. His name was R.E. White. And over those two or three years that I was there, he really committed himself to me. He challenged me to make me think. He sharpened my Greek, taught me philosophy. And we came to Canada and got involved in all kinds of stuff. Many of you know me from Lambrick Park Church, where I was for about 24 years. And somewhere in the middle of that, where the congregation was running a thousand plus on a Sunday morning, I would often comment on him. So one day I sat down and I wrote to him. I said, dear Mr. White, this is from Tom Cowan. And I told him the many times I thought about him, I thanked him for coming in early to sharpen my Greek again, my Greek text, for all that he'd done to me. And I said, I want to tell him about our congregation, about our family. And I said, I want to thank you very much for all that you invested in me. Other than Jesus and Harriet, he's the one that gives me the strength to be here. A couple of weeks later, I got a letter back Dear Cowan, don't know if he ever knew my first name. (laughs) Dear Cowan, it's a wet, dreary day in Glasgow, and I got your letter. I learned by this time that he was slowly losing his sight. He thanked me for the words that I'd said, that I'd written. And then he said to me, your letter arrived in a day I'll try to say this. Your letter arrived in a day when I was wondering if I'd wasted my life. He was wondering if he wasted my life. He poured all that he had into me and many students. A few weeks later, I learned he'd passed away. I got a letter from his wife, Gwyneth. She's a Welsh lady. She said, Dear Tom, thank you for writing to Reg. You're the only person who ever did. Let me ask you this morning. Is there somebody in your family, your circle, that you've been meaning to write to and thank them? Can I say to you this week, This afternoon, would you do that, please? 
I think about Aria White every time I come and I stand here. Please do that. If you're visiting with us or online or wherever, we're working through a series on the letters to the seven churches, trying to see what they speak to us these days. And many, many of you are familiar with Google. You know what happens as you scroll down a page, you, your cursor crosses a word or phrase that's highlighted in some way. And it means other information is available. So you click on a word and phrase and more stuff opens up. So the scripture reading we have this morning is actually printed for you in your notes. I want to imagine you're reading on the internet and we're going to stop at some words and phrases that are highlighted and see what they teach us and give us this morning. The first word that we double click on is Thyatira. That's today's letter. And another screen opens up to tell us a little bit about the background to this city. Thyatira was the gateway to Pergamum. We looked at that last week, the capital city. And so Thyatira's job was that if Pergamum was going at being attacked, Thyatira had to fight a delaying action until Pergamum could get organized, get people ready, and fight back. So Thyatira was a city fated to fight, lose, be captured, be destroyed, and have to rebuild again. In our geography, I was thinking the last couple of weeks, imagine if Victoria was under attack. That's the role that Sydney has. <laughs> so some of you, this family here, don't you like, you guys live in Sydney? Okay, you understand your role. And I know some others do too, so that's the role that Sydney has. But something else we learned about Thyatira is very important. Thyatira had an extensive trade guild, we might call labor union network. That played a very important part in the social, political, economic, religious life. Because you see, each guild had its own patron deity, feasts and festivals. William Barclay, who um, gives us a whole lot of insight into New Testament background. I used to go and listen to William Barclay lecture at times at the University of Glasgow. Somebody once said to me, are you that old? <laughs> but he tells us. The social activities of these trade guilds were intimately bound up with the worship of heathen gods. These trade guilds had common meals together. The meal would begin with a, a cup of wine poured out as an offering to the gods. A heathen grace would be said. So could a Christian join a ceremony like that? Still further, a meal would take part, and a meal would certainly follow a sacrifice. A token part of the animal would be cut off and offered on the altar. The meat would be given to the worshiper to make a feast for the members of the trade guild. So the question is, could a Christian sit and eat meat which had been offered to an idol? Could he partake in a meal where the meat had been offered to Apollos or Artemis? And then the, usually it was followed into drunkenness and immorality. Now there's a very real problem here in terms of economics. Because in Thyatira, the Christian merchant or trader or craftsman was a member of the trade guild. And if he participated in those ceremonies, he would protect his business interests. But if as a Christian, he refused to become a member of the guild, refused to participate, he was committing economic and commercial suicide, would face poverty and even bankruptcy. So what do you do? We'll come back to that in a moment. 
Another verse, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance. Now you're doing more than you did at first. There are six things that this church did. First of all, deeds. This was a church that worked hard. You rolled your sleeves up when you joined the church of Thyatira. Love. You remember the first letter, this is where the Ephesian church failed. Then there was faith. They kept the truth. Service. The word is diakonia. It gives us the word deacons. And then the writer says perseverance. They didn't quit when the going got tough. There are two words in the Greek New Testament, sometimes translated patience or perseverance. The one used here always means patience in difficult circumstances. You don't quit. That's what it tells us. The other word, very different word, means patience with difficult people. So if you read the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, that's a different Greek word entirely. When you think about it in your own life, patience with circumstances demands different skill than patience with difficult people. And the last quality, you are doing more now than you did at first. In other words, this church simply did not do more of the same. They were finding new ways to stretch forward. They were taking initiative. There was enterprising in regard to ministry. And so this sounds, frankly, like a pretty good church to be part of. And so we read on and we come to another word. This word stops us. It's not a word, it's a name. The name is Jezebel. It seems that a woman, a Jezebel, was corrupting the church. Now, that takes us back to an Old Testament story. We need to go back and see who Jezebel was in the Old Testament. We find her back in 1st, 2nd Kings. Jezebel was the Canaanite wife of King Ahab. She influenced Ahab to worship Baal and to turn away from God. Not only did she lead Ahab into worshiping false gods, but through Ahab she preached false teaching and idolatry through Israel. She had many prophets killed him. If you know the story, Jezebel and Elijah had some serious confrontation. So Jezebel is a real person in the Old Testament. There may have been a real person called Jezebel in this church. There's a suggestion that Jezebel was actually the wife of the bishop of the church. Or perhaps her name is used simply in a metaphorical sense, a symbolic, figurative way. We're not sure. And right at the moment, that's not important to us. What is important is that someone, in this case a woman, is influencing both the teaching and the behavior of people in the church. She claimed to have some deep truths that no one else had. And this is what she's teaching. Verse 24. To you who do not hold to her teaching and have not yet learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, hold on to what you have until I come. The point is that this woman and what she's teaching are influencing many away in the church from the truth. So with this brief bit of background, what does it say to us today? What are the dangers and the temptations that we are facing? The first one I suggest to you is a kind of a big clumsy word, but it's called compartmentalization. That's the answer you give of how you live in a city filled with trade guilds. How you live in a city filled with immorality. You simply divide your life into a number of compartments. You see, there's your worship church compartment. Have I got this coming up now, please? 
There you go. You've got an apartment with a compartment with friends in it. Then your family life. Then there's your work life. That's where you go to the, the trade guild suppers. Then there's money. There's your church life. And then there's your social life. And you just keep going around these. The trick is that you don't let the people in one meet people in the other. It's the illusion we play, which is called both end. We want both this and this. It means, you see, you can be one person at church, another person at home, another person at work, at the office party, with friends, and so on. It's both end. And that denies the fact that our Christian lives have to be integrated. Now remember, what is an integer? Someone? A whole number. Our lives cannot be divided. They're not like the segments of a grapefruit. Rather, we live homogenized lives, all mixed together. We need to live from a different viewpoint, actually an entirely different way of thinking. And so you see, what happens is this. Now, we put Jesus as Lord, not as one of the segments of this, but Jesus as Lord is in the middle. And his rule, his word, his mind is to stretch out into every facet and part of our lives. That is what gives our lives integrity, wholeness. And can I say to you, the spirit of Jezebel is still very, very much with us. The spirit of Baal worship is still very much with, with us. No one uses the name Baal anymore. But it is still the controlling spirit of the public square. So many times, it can't be both and. It must be either or. How do we remain loyal to Christ in the marketplace? It's not easy. It has never been easy. But here's what it demands. Out of the centrality of Christ. Can I come back to my diagram? Thank you. Out of the diagram. You see, Jesus as Lord spreads out and touches every part of who we are. And that leads to a second familiar enemy in these letters. It's compromise. As we've seen before, grace and truth are silently eroded. The power of our faith, in a public sense, silently declines. So behind this struggle, we have to ask, how can one person, how can one person have so much influence in a church and over a church? over a group of people. How can this happen? Can it happen today? The answer is most certainly yes. It starts with what I will call for us this morning, the cult of the celebrity. Why had one woman's voice, by the way, it could easily have been a man's voice. Why had that risen above the sanctified common sense of the congregation? Why had a solo voice been heard and followed above the symphony of the people of God? It was because the church had allowed itself to slip into what I will call the cult of the personality or the cult of the celebrity. A British theologian called Alexander McGrath raises some thoughtful questions. He says, the rise of televangelism and preaching ministries has led to a growing cult of personality within evangelism. He said, it is not often what the church, the scriptures teach that really matters. 
What matters is this, what the celebrity has to tell me about their experience or, or their insights. Often, scripture's ignored altogether. It's what God is saying directly through this person. That's what counts. Now, that may sound harsh and severe, but it contains a serious warning. It is the cult of the celebrity. So we need to ask, we need to ask some better, deeper questions. Is there a danger that the word of the Christian celebrity or the experience of the Christian celeb personality can take on a weight and a force which is even above the word of God? When this happens, and I suggest it does, it is because of the authority and the influence that we give to them. We elevate them and place them on a spiritual platform. I do not want to use names of specific people because I think if I mentioned some people, male or female, men, women, in this category, some of you would be angry with me. But we all know that there are both women and men who regarded internationally as Bible teachers. People read them and follow them. If we invited one of them to Central on a Sunday morning or to a weekend conference, it would be standing room only. I am well aware that I often read and quote other people. I have to do so carefully. And I use their names not to exalt them, but because I've learned from them. These are people whose ministry has been of great help to me. We have to read what they say to the body of Christ, the church at large. Is something more right, more authority because someone has a publicly approved name? The answer is no. And the easy access to media today, the speed of media, makes us vulnerable to a new, almost scary way to the cult of the celebrity, the power of the personality. And if we are not careful, we make Christian leaders into celebrities. So what do we do? There is a counterbalance to this, which I believe helps and protects leaders and people alike. It's an old truth that the reformers discovered early in the 16th century. One of the great discoveries of the Reformation was that the truth, the truth that the scriptures were the music of God written not just for a few star performers or guest celebrities, but the scriptures were written for the benefit and the blessing of the whole orchestra, which is the gathered church. It's the Reformation principle of public accountability of the word of God. It is the right, the responsibility of all believers, everyone as believers, to read, to study, to interpret scripture. It's not the sole domain of a few experts and celebrities. The congregation, you folks, must and can challenge pastors when they appear to deny it, to depart from it, to add to it, or to subtract from it. You see, the counterbalance to the cult of the celebrity is the community of God's people each possessing the right and the responsibility to read, to study, to interpret, to reflect on the meaning of scripture and put their minds together as the people of God. That's why you need to bring your Bible, to open it as I preach, 
to hold me accountable. Now, let me just say this a little bit with no guilt here, okay? Because I don't believe guilt's a biblical motive, okay? Can I protect myself that way? No guilt here. But it's just a word of encouragement and maybe a word of challenge. It seems to me that many, many Christians coming to church on Sunday morning have gotten out of the habit of bringing their Bibles. I know some of you have got cell phones and um, all that stuff. But opening your Bible or your phone on a Sunday morning as we listen to God's Word, you should have it there with you. And checking the pastor and preachers, we go. We used to run in another church, a large um, uh, children's ministry called the Wana. And you got points if you brought your Bible. I'll leave that one with you. You remember 1 John 4 and 1? It says simply, test the spirits. We can only do that if we hold their message up against the authority of Scripture. And to do that, we need to know Scripture. The next Sunday or two Sundays, I can't remember because I've got three or four messages in my mind at the same time. We'll talk about the five things that we do with the Bible. Also, in the times in which we live, and I say this um, sadly, the life and the lifestyles of these Christian leaders must also echo the lifestyle which is called for in the scriptures. It's sad, deeply sad, that in the last few years, several large movements in the church which have contributed a lot have fallen into disrepute over the exposed sin of some of their leaders. It makes you wonder, was there no one? Was there no one who would stand up and speak against this Jezebel and challenge her teaching? In the cult of the celebrity no one does because we give them celebrity status. But we are committed to the word of God being in the midst of the people of God. Can I say you have a great responsibility as God's people here in this church and in this city to know what God's word says. Connected to that is what we will call the seduction of power. You may know Lord Acton's well-known phrase, power corrupts, and you finish it, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Leaders of power, they have the power to lead, the power to influence. False prophets, false leaders also have power and also influence. We would do well to remember that the sin in the garden was essentially a sin of power. You shall be as God. The seduction of power has always been one of Satan's most effective tools. Power becomes a tool to control rather than to serve, to dominate rather than to bring blessing. A few weeks ago now, Harriet and I watched um, a large part of the coronation of King Charles III in, in, in London. I was intrigued by the message of the Archbishop of Canterbury, that recent coronation. He spoke about the real reason of power was to serve, was to serve. 
And we need to discern the great difference between the gospel of power and the power of the gospel. The gospel of power is found in experience rather than the word of God. Just because a Christian and a Christian leader claims to have a Christian experience does not make it a Christian experience. People who seek and follow the experience may actually find themselves far from the power of the gospel and not even know it. You see, when we lose sight of the public objective truth of the scriptures, we are defenseless against the power of personality and we become easy prey for the seduction of power, especially when someone says, God told me this, God told me that, or I have a special revelation from God. That is what revelation calls the deep secrets. In fact, they turned out to be the deep secrets from Satan. Once again, the Reformation enables ordinary Christians to blow the whistle on these leaders to examine the heart of their power. We need to watch people with power very carefully. We need to see if the people who have spiritual power are also willing to get down on their knees and serve people. The kingdom of God is about power, but it is the power to serve. It is the power to change lives. It's the power of righteousness. It's the power of peace. It is about the grain of mustard seed. It is about the power of the lamb. Finally, the abdication of personal responsibility. What I mean by this is that somewhere along the line, when things go off the rails and coupled with the seduction of power, it seems that people are sometimes willing to transfer what they know and what their knowledge comes from, from themselves, to someone else. That's the abdication of personal responsibility. It's the abdication of personal responsibility to do our own thinking, to reach our own analysis, to develop our own critical judgment. And we transfer that responsibility over to someone else. That's an abdication. That is surrender. So they think for us. They decide for us. They digest for us. We simply get their answers. There's at least two major areas in which that can happen. One is what we believe. That is doctrinal. In this area, we allow someone else to do our thinking for us, to shape what we think and ultimately what we believe. We're surrendering the crucial analysis of our lives to someone else. In a legal sense, we let them become the power of attorney. Since someone else has done all the thinking for us, it's easy to assume that we're personally released from responsibility. That's not the case at all. The second area is how we behave, our lifestyle, the moral area. If we allow someone else to shape how we live, we play a deadly, deadly game of follow the leader. It's fine to be a follower. Followers have to be very sure who the leaders are and who they're following. Sometimes these spiritual gurus call for a lifestyle that requires sacrifice and surrender. They decide what we eat and drink and live. We have seen this tragically before, the last couple of decades with Jim Jones, David Koresh, and others. At other times, these spiritual leaders may decide lifestyles are fine, so in Thyatira, as Jezebel says, enjoy a prostitute or two. Join the trade guilds. 
That'll be good for business. What harm will it do? That leads to the silence of our minds. We do not do our own thinking. That is a very, very dangerous step, folks. If we follow anyone, if we are to give anyone celebrity status in our lives, let it be Jesus. Amen? Let it be Jesus. He is not the leader of a cult. He is Savior. He is Lord. And he is King. And if we are to seek power in our lives, may it be the power of the towel on the cross. These are the true symbols of his power. And if we are to think like anyone, we will learn to think like Jesus. That's why Philippians chapter 2 says to us, phenomenal passage, let this mind, let this kind of thinking be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The issue is simply loyalty. We cannot live both and. It has to be either or. Either or. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back. I'm going to invite you please to stand. The letter to this church finishes with the words of Jesus. To the one who overcomes, I will give the morning star. The morning star usually appears at the darkest time of the night. And when it appears, there may be no sign of the dawn. It is very faint. But the darkness cannot hold back the coming of the dawn. It is just a matter of time until the coming dawn fights the battle with the night and the morning star wins. Jesus uses the term to overcome in all of these seven letters. And to overcome means to keep his word to the end, right up to the very end. Overcomers are those who are willing to lose willing to be rejected by their culture. But surprise, surprise, overcomers end up reigning with the Son of God. We want to take a moment to thank you for listening. And we invite you to join us on Sunday mornings in person or online. For more information about who we are and what's happening at the church, visit us online at centralbaptistchurch.ca. And it would mean so much to us if you took a moment to rate and review the podcast. It's one of the best ways you can help us spread the truth of the gospel online. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast.